Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Cities in History podcast. Today I'll be talking about women and the city. Women have never experienced cities in the same way as men. For one thing, concerns about urban danger are not just overblown hysteria. Women can be in danger in cities to a greater extent than men and in different ways. For instance, the custom of a man walking on the outside as he accompanies a woman down the street comes from a sense that women need protecting from the urban space. Not just potential attackers, but splashes of mud from passing traffic, and quite possibly catcalls from those in passing vehicles. Although I have no proof, I am almost certain that the wolf whistle or obscene suggestion yelled out the window to a female pedestrian did not start with automobiles, but was happening with horse-drawn vehicles too. In different cultures, terms like women of the city, public women, have referred to prostitutes. There is an underlying assumption in that history that respectable women don't belong in urban spaces. Stories from the 17th century onwards in Europe often had a theme of the innocent girl from the country who goes to the city, who becomes debauched, who finds herself in a whorehouse or living as a kept woman. The message was that cities were dangerous. Of course, this also made them sound more exciting. Prostitution has always been present in cities and has verged, as now, from the upmarket brothel and the expensive coal girl catering to an elite clientele a woman who may indeed have chosen that lifestyle, to the truly seedy, abusive and dangerous lives of women touting for business on the streets of rough neighbourhoods. The paradigmatic example of those unfortunates is the women who became victims of Jack the Ripper. Around the same time, in London in the 1880s, the journalist W.T. Stead set out to expose the level of child exploitation and prostitution and wrote a series of articles called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. He'd approached a procuress and arranged to purchase a 13-year-old girl for five pounds. His story and his journalistic methods caused great controversy. He was briefly jailed for kidnapping as a result of the case. Nonetheless, it brought attention to the situation of sex trafficking of girls and women and resulted in the age of consent being raised from 13 to 16. In some cultures, being on the street unaccompanied branded a woman suspicious, even criminal. This is true even today, and it's something I'm going to come back to. In the West, looking at history, it's too extreme to say that respectable women weren't always around in urban spaces, performing various roles. But the liminal position of women in cities is particularly illustrated by apparently trivial things. For one, public lavatories. The first public facilities were provided only for men. The assumption was that any decent woman would be going to a restaurant or visiting a friend's house, and any woman who was lingering on the street long enough to need to make use of a public restroom was up to no good. People didn't want to attract such women to their neighborhoods by providing facilities for them. This inequity of access and assumptions about correct women's behavior were a big influence on urban planning even into the 20th century. A second thing reflecting the uneasy relationship between women and the city in history were the Contagious Diseases Acts. These outrageous pieces of legislation were passed in England in the 1860s. By contagious diseases, they didn't mean cholera or typhus. They meant venereal diseases, which were, of course, carried only by women. And these laws first applied in some naval ports and army towns, but were later in operation in 18 districts. On the pretense of protecting men in the armed forces from infected prostitutes, they actually became a tool of oppression for women in urban areas. The laws stated that prostitutes, or rather any woman on the street who a policeman suspected might be a prostitute, could be arrested, subjected to a forced medical examination. 
If she was found to be infected, she could be essentially jailed in what was called a lock hospital for up to a year. That such laws were passed at the height of Victorian urban growth shows the fear of women and moral decline in urban spaces. After strong public protest, the laws were repealed in 1886. As the 19th century rolled into the 20th, more women were living in cities, single women who were employed sometimes in shops and offices. There were also women working as maids, housekeepers, cooks for the expanding urban middle class who were able to afford domestic help. Growth of cities and the bureaucratization of industry had also created many office jobs, and a lot of the roles that women moved into had previously been all-male, and these are the secretarial, clerical positions that are now sometimes referred to as pink-collar. Industrialization had also brought women to work in factories. During what historians call the progressive era in the United States, which is from the 1890s to the 1920s, uh, many social reforms took place, hence the name, and one of these was the end of child labor. This, in turn, brought many children out of factories and into the classrooms, thereby providing jobs for teachers, and teaching has always been one of the biggest career fields for women, too. Now, in cities, the presence of so many potential female customers presented opportunities for businesses who wanted to take advantage of this market. Through the 19th century, we saw cities offering more diversions and attractions which were suitable for respectable women, public parks, museums, concert halls, etc., and the department store was born, which was particularly focused on attracting female customers. Now, this is something I'll discuss more in another episode on shopping in the city. Meanwhile, apartment living and labor-saving devices, the vacuum cleaner, the refrigerator, for instance, changed modes of living for women, too. So how do women relate to the city? I mentioned the idea of the flaneur in episode 3, discussing the ideas of Benjamin and Simmel. The figure of the flaneur as the emblem of modernity and the possibility of his having a female counterpart is something of an ongoing debate. If the necessities to be a flaneur are the ability to gaze and observe the crowded spectacle without being observed, without being the object of desire, then in some ways this is impossible for women. Uh, One historian, Priscilla Pankhurst Ferguson, has said that a woman cannot be a flaneur because her gender makes her part of the urban drama being observed. And if a woman idling on the street, therefore, is to be consumed and enjoyed by men along with the rest of the sites of the city, she is the object, not the subject, of modernity. Now, this is an interesting debate, and if we look at the first female detectives hired by Pinkerton's agency in the mid-19th century, they were precisely not flaneurses. And this is interesting precisely because they hired men to essentially perform the role of flaneurs, to be men who would blend in, who could observe without really being noticed by the people around them. Whereas the women that Pinkerton hired, he called them ropers. Their job was to engage people in conversation and gather information in that way. He felt a woman could not be the unseen observer in a way that a man could. And I'll talk about the male detective a bit more in another episode on crime in the city. In Japan, the rise of industrialization in the early 20th century also created tensions over the role of women in the city. Part of the modernization of cities like Tokyo brought the public cafe. Now, these Western-style cafes uh, provided places, obviously, for office-working men to buy meals, and they were spaces in which patrons were on view 
uh, to anyone passing by in a way that was very different to the traditional Japanese tea house in which patrons were essentially screened off from anyone who could see them. However, they were also an in-between space in terms of the woman as employee and the woman as hostess. These cafe waitresses of the early 20th century actually had to pay the owner of the cafe a contribution towards the cost of employment of the cooks, and she had to pay for the cost of all the food and drink that her customers consumed. So for the customer, the food was essentially free. He was tipping the waitress for her company and time, and she had to be hoping that her tips covered the cost of whatever he had consumed. This situation put more pressure on the waitress to provide friendly company, even sexual services for customers. And the fact that engaging more waitresses did not cost anything to the owner of the cafe meant that large establishments could have dozens of waitresses, some with as many as one per customer. And the idea that women in the urban space are there to provide interest or engagement for men is part of the underlying challenge to the idea of the flaneurs. And we can see this as a cross-cultural is issue historically. And in future episodes, I will be discussing other aspects of urban life and how women um, interact with it. But I'll be back soon with our next episode, which will be about the history of Havana. For more information about the series, please visit citiesinhistory.com and you can follow on Twitter at citiesinhistory. Thanks for listening. <laughs>